0: Hey listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Ingrid and I are really excited about today's interview, and we think you will be too, as we hear from a renowned science author and journalist about the history and future of managing the Colorado River in North America.
1: Hello listeners. So as a native Coloradan and someone who's spent a lot of time thinking about and advocating for the Colorado River, I was super glad we got to dive more into this topic. We were able to cover a lot of ground with John Fleck who has a brand new book out on managing and also mismanaging water in the Western United States. The story of the Colorado River has so many layers and we got to cover a lot of them in our interview. Transboundary management, the perils of bad science, balancing tribal, urban and rural demands, the impacts of climate change and creating updated governance mechanisms to fit the 21st century and beyond.
0: Make sure to stick around after the interview for our continuing climate of hope segment in partnership with the world youth parliament for water we'll wrap up with a story you won't want to miss from a young scientist named julianne schillinger don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us your reviews enjoy climate ready is a product of agua the alliance for global water adaptation an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation.
1: The Climate Ready Podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de.
0: Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water.
1: So today on the Climate Ready podcast, we are very excited to be talking to John Fleck, a renowned author, science journalist, and all-around expert on the transboundary Colorado River Basin. John is also the director of the University of New Mexico's Water Resources Program, based in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in the United States. He has a new book coming out entitled Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science Drain the Colorado River. John, welcome to Climate Ready.
2: Thanks so much for having me. We're super excited to have you
0: today, John. And uh, I thought we might just start out to give a little background. So for our listeners who might not be so familiar with the Colorado River Basin, could you start by giving a brief overview of of where the basin is physically located, talking a little bit about the regional climate and which states or sovereign governments are involved in, in managing and protecting it?
2: So the Colorado River begins in the mountains of the sort of southwestern, south central United States. In the Rocky Mountains, big mountain range that runs down the spine of the North American continent, the mountains are high, you know, 14,000, 15,000 feet, uh, 4,000 meters high. You get snowpack forming in the mountains in the winter, and it flows down through a magnificent desert country through seven U.S. states and then crosses the U.S.-Mexico border and also flows through and provides water to Baja and Sonora, two states in the Republic of Mexico. So nine states altogether in two nations. When the river flows all the way, it doesn't now make it to the sea because humans have diverted and used all the water. But it's the major water supply for 35 or 40 million people in these two nations in the entire southwestern corner of the United States and that uh, northwestern corner of the Republic of
1: Mexico. Excellent. So that's a good setting for us in terms of the physical geography. In terms of governance, there's a primary legal agreement governing the basin, which is the 1922 Colorado Compact, which is also known along with some other documents as well as the law of the river. And so I'm wondering kind of if you could take us back to 1922 And thinking about the folks who were living in the basin, what was life like for them back then? And what were they thinking when they signed this agreement? And then fast forward to now, how have things changed or not?
2: This is an area of the United States that had a a long history of indigenous cultures, aboriginal cultures through time immemorial, many, many, many thousands of years. As the European immigrants came to this part of the world, mostly as the What would become the United States moved westward from the eastern seaboard of the United States. The land was largely settled and colonized. Indigenous communities were dispossessed, pushed off of the land, often placed on reservations or killed. It's a really sad history there. And and, the settlers came in as early as the mid to late 1800s, hoping to build farming communities in this region. But it's a really arid region. There is not enough rain falling from the sky in this region to farm. So they realized that the Colorado River had the potential to be a major source of water to provide water for what they hoped would be these big farming communities, but they didn't have the sort of the governance structures to manage the big collective task of building big dams and canals and diverting this water to these farmable landscapes. and. We had this legal structure in the United States at the time, in the late 1900s, early 20th century, that kind of didn't know how to deal with water when it was passing across borders from one U.S. state to the next. So we have a federalist governance system here in the United States where we have a big national government, but a lot of the powers are delegated to more local governments called states. Mm -hmm. And people didn't know how to sort of share water when it flowed from one state to the next. In order to build these big dams, everybody had to get together at really large scales, so they had to come up with a sort of set of agreements that would support the plans. They had to decide how to share this water, how to decide who would get how much water. In 1922, they negotiated an agreement that we call the Colorado River Compact, which essentially divided the water up among the seven states in the western United States, Mexico didn't come along till later in terms of dividing up the share of water, and you know nobody had ever done this before. This was really the first globally, the first effort to develop a river at this scale. Hoover Dam, which is the first big dam built on the Colorado River, was by far the largest dam of its time and is really the precursor to the major damming of rivers around the world. And so it was a giant experiment in politics and policy, as well as in the sort of physical hydrology and hydrologic infrastructure of how you physically built these things. You had to build the institutional tools to figure out how to share this water. Very different environment then than we have today. Then we were thinking about farming. Now we use this water in cities, and we have to think about how to share between farms and cities. And so we have a whole different set of problems today.
0: You've alluded to some of this too, but going back to when the compact was signed, the state's they came together to divide up the river's water, and they, they did so between the upper and the lower basin. And at the time, they made their calculations based on water volumes that then in actuality were far higher than the river's average annual flow. And we can now understand that flow can fluctuate greatly from year to year. This has yeah. resulted in, in the river being really seriously overallocated. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, more about this original meeting and how we ended up with such bad math?
2: And this is the subject of Science Be Damned, the new book that that my colleague Eric Kuhn and I have written. You have to remember that this is the beginning of the large-scale use of rivers around the world. So nobody had ever done anything like this before. The science of measuring flows in rivers was relatively young. They had river gauges, measurement stations, along the Colorado River. They'd had them in place for about 20 years. And that 20 years of Measurement data that they had available it turns out to have been in a very unusually wet time, one of the wettest times in the last 500 years. And so, so
1: unfortunate. When,
2: <laughs> yeah. So when they allocated the water, the measurements showed a lot of water, and so they divided that water up. The problem is they didn't divide by percentages; they allocated absolute amount, and so they made this tremendous mistake based on bad data and. The traditional story that we've always told in the United States about this mistake is, well, they only had 20 years of river flow measurements from their gauges, and it happened to be an unusually wet time. You know, How could they have known any better? I think the really important thing that Eric and I, Eric Kuhn and I are doing in this new book is really showing that our old understanding of how they made this decision is wrong. There were scientists at the time, really important scientists, who found clever ways to look farther back into the science and tried to warn the people planning these projects that there had been substantial droughts in the late 1800s and that they were working with numbers from an unusually wet time and those scientists were ignored and that's a really important part of the story and I think is what Eric and I I think are usefully adding to the public discussion about how we're how we got in this mess we're we're in because, you know, instead of just doing the best they could with what they had at the time, they willfully chose ignorance. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: They willfully chose to ignore scientists who were telling them something that was inconvenient that they didn't want to hear. You know, and that's a really important message today when we think about how we respond, especially here in the United States where we have such a difficult political environment around the science of climate change. Not so subtle parallels there, yeah. It's a really important message that you need to pay attention to the science. And the mess we're in is significant as a result because you have a whole lot of people who across much of the 20th century acted as if these cooked up numbers from the early 1920s were real and built accordingly. Built dams, built ditches, canals, farms, cities, you know, entire communities around phony math, and we're suffering the consequences now.
1: And it's still happening. It? <laughs> you know? Yes. I and mean, we're still using these numbers.
2: Yes. yes. Which,
1: is, which kind of, I, so that kind of leads me into into my next question, because as you mentioned earlier, we've got 35 to 40 million people living in this area Plus all this irrigated agriculture, as well as, you know, obviously quite sensitive ecosystems that depend on this river. And so, you know, at the time when you didn't have this many people, this terrible mistake maybe wasn't such a big deal. But today there's serious shortages, potentially. I'm curious as to, has there been a serious conversation about this, you know, and what are the states and tribes and water districts and others doing to amend this
2: for a long time, we just kept using more water than the system provided. The reservoirs kept dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping so that now the big reservoirs are, you know, which were full 20 years ago are now less than half full. And so what, what you see going on today is a couple of really important things. And, and you know, I'm going to sound really pessimistic with all this stuff that I'm saying, but in fact, I'm optimistic because what's happening now is happening along a couple of different dimensions. One. People are very successfully using less water. So water use is going down in the basin. I had some conversations this week with folks out in Los Angeles, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. It's half the people getting water from the Colorado River Basin are in that Southern California coastal plain, Los Angeles and San Diego, 20 million people. Their use of Colorado River water this year is the lowest it's been since the 1950s. So that you've seen very, very successful changes in the approach to water management and water use in the cities. Water conservation is working in almost every single metropolitan area. Water use is going down, even though population is going up. So that's one thing. You're also getting a much more sophisticated use of water in agriculture. In the 21st century Most of the water still goes to agriculture. We still farm with 80% of this water. And you're seeing farm water use also declining, but the farmers are getting more sophisticated about how they use water so that crop productivity continues to rise. You're seeing on both sides, the farm side and the municipal side, very successful water conservation. This is good, but we're not seeing enough water conservation. So the reservoirs are still dropping. They've been much more stable the last few years. We're getting closer to where we need to be, but we still have a ways to go. And part of it is really institutional. It's like, how do we get people to rewrite the water allocation rules that sort of recognizes this new reality?
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it sounds like we're making positive strides as far as behavioral changes and and conservation and even just the management of the water overall. But at the end of the day, you're still running into this wall of governance. So what are some of the primary challenges stopping us from getting over this hump that negotiators have been grappling with?
2: I spend a lot of time traveling around the West speaking about water. And a lot of times I'll be speaking at conferences of water managers. And there will be people in the water management community who actually are surprised when I throw up my graphs showing water use going down in Los Angeles and Las Vegas and Alabama say, wait, really? There's this expectation that growing population means we need more water. And the first and most important thing is for folks to realize that we can have the communities we have with less water and that you don't have to fight over your water allocation with your neighbors, that it's not a zero-sum game, that if we can figure out how to collaborate across these boundaries and come up with better water sharing rules, that everybody can still succeed using less water. So there are a bunch of really Byzantine, hairy, complicated changes in the rule sets that people talk about now, how you might structure a bargain, who might give up, what in terms of these paper allocations of water that don't have wet water to match them. But, but the key thing is sort of convincing the folks back home that we can make this agreement, we can agree to use less water, to not feel like our growing population means we need to take more water out of the river and therefore the, we need to do battle with the other people. You know, water should not be for fighting over water it has to be for collaboration. Yep.
0: Real quickly, could you explain or, or distinguish the paper water, <laughs> wet water? Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. This is, it's really interesting.
2: This is, this is crazy, wonderful thing in U S water law. Um, the lawyers have this term wet water versus paper water. Paper water means I have some sort of legal entitlement on paper to a certain amount of water. Wet water is the actual amount of water in the river or the aquifer that could be used to satisfy my needs. So we have paper water allocations in the Colorado River that are 25 or 30% higher than the actual amount of wet water we have, maybe more. You know, we haven't really touched on climate change yet, and we, we should talk about that because That really then doesn't change the amount of paper water. It does change likely the amount of wet water that we have to work with going forward.
1: That's great. That's exactly the direction we we were going next. Because all the things that we're talking about right now is, you know, we're already facing all of these challenges of reconciling our paper water rights, which are inflated. But now we're also battling warming temperatures, decreasing snowpack, et cetera, which is throwing another wrench in and adding an additional kind of layer of uncertainty around kind of what we're going to have for the future. And so how has that conversation maybe added some impetus for people to actually have more discussions, or is it causing people to dig in their heels even more? I mean, how is, how is climate change impacting this?
2: A big part of what's happening, and I, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to my co-author, Eric Kuhn, for being one of the pioneering leaders in Colorado River Basin Water Management, you increasingly have an effort not to try to figure out what the average flow of the river is likely to be going forward, not to manage for a single number, which was the mistake they made in 1922. They managed for a single number and they got the number wrong, but rather to manage understanding that we face variability in flows in the river and to be prepared for The wet side hives, what can we do to capture and make use of extra water in a wet year like we just had in 2019 in the Colorado River Basin? And what can we do to prepare for the dry side years as well so that we have more resilient and flexible and adaptive water management institutions that are ready for anything? And you see this in the approach of the water management community. You see a lot of work, you know, our jargon is scenario planning. What do we need to do to prepare for a bunch of different possible pathways. And let's be ready for a really dry year. Let's make sure we have enough water excess banked in reservoirs and the institutional accounting tools to make sure we keep track of who's water and who has water available to manage for both wet and dry times in a way that gives us a lot more flexibility.
0: Because we're talking about, in terms of the Colorado River Basin, a lot of arid regions, uh, particularly in the southwestern United States. And and there seems to be a sense that, at least historically, that if we can engineer a solution to the, to the problem, throwing up air quotes here, to the problem of aridity, then right. we should, you know, a, a kind of a sense of techno optimism. But as we're learning, there are consequences to messing with the natural plumbing of an ecosystem. Uh, and, and you, John, as, as a journalist covering the region for many years, are you starting to see a, a, a shift in the political conversation at all in this direction?
2: Yeah. I do see a shift, and the shift is slow. We can still see places where people are in pursuit of engineering solutions. The number of places is shrinking. But far more attention now is being shifted to the institutional side. Instead of building physical engineering solutions, how do we build institutional water-sharing arrangements that will allow us to more equitably and nimbly share the water we have that's where the next round of engineering is it's a sort of human institutional engineering not physical engineering huh and, I like that and, and and there's a really important piece of this that we're not at all good at yet which is also acknowledging there are these natural systems and we've taken water out of them and we need to figure out how to put some water back into them as well to we'll recognize the ecosystems themselves
1: It's really cool to hear that there is this sea change maybe in the way that people are thinking about the system.
0: Fantastic. And then, John, for those interested in learning more about this topic, could you point our listeners to any additional resources?
2: Well, so obviously I got a book.
1: Yes, yes, including your book.
2: (laughs) Science Be Damned, How Ignoring Inconvenient Science drained the Colorado River, University of Arizona Press, publishing this fall. wrote another book, Waters for Fighting Over and Other Myths About Water in the West, and it is the quintessentially optimistic book. One can't enter this world without thinking about a book called Cadillac Desert by a guy named Mark Reisner, like me, a journalist trying to tell the stories of water. Mm -hmm. Mark's more pessimistic than I am, but it's a really important story as well about how we got into this mess. And then I came from a life of newspapering. And I think it's really important wherever you are to embrace the local journalists who are telling the water story in the place you are, talk to them, help them, encourage them, read them.
1: Thank you so much, John. That was really, really interesting
2: to me. Excellent. Thank you much for doing this. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye.
1: I really enjoyed this interview. You could really tell that John knows the value of storytelling in communicating politically and scientifically complex topics. I think the story of the Colorado River is a story both of management challenges and missed opportunities. With that said, John's optimistic outlook gave me a bit of hope, and I really don't think he's wrong. One of the things that I really took away that I think is important to maybe re-emphasize was a shift from emphasizing engineering solutions towards emphasizing a need for new and improved institutional solutions to water management.
0: When John was talking about that shift, he echoed what we've said in numerous episodes that climate-resilient management must be robust, flexible, and adaptive, and it sounds like the river management agencies are succeeding with conservation approaches coupled with adaptive management for new climate realities. Even though water has historically been a source of conflict in the region, perhaps we're seeing a shift towards water as a means for collaboration.
1: And with that, we'll move on to our Climate of Hope segment. This episode we'll hear from Julianne Schillinger on the growing voice of scientists in political movements as a result of the climate crisis.
3: Hello everyone, and thank you for having me on. I'm a PhD researcher at the University of Twente in the Netherlands, where I work on local water management in the Middle East. I'm also the head of the World Youth Parliament for Water's research group, which connects students and early career scientists from all over the world. Looking at the science behind climate change and its impacts provides a very grim outlook, particularly in the Middle East, which is my region of expertise. And yet science, or rather the scientific community, also makes me carefully optimistic about what we can achieve in the upcoming years. Science as such should be nonpartisan. Political opinions should never influence the way we conduct or present our research. Historically, this has also carried the expectation that scientists should stay out of politics. The growing disregard for scientific research and evidence by politicians that we have witnessed over the past years, particularly with regards to the climate crisis, has changed us. It has motivated many of us to speak up and take a stance for the facts, both in formal political settings and on the streets. The various marches of science around the world in 2017 come to mind here. More recently, the scientific community has rallied behind the ongoing climate demonstrations and activist campaigns, amplifying the expressions of urgency and calls for evidence-based climate action. The Scientists for Future movement is taking a strong stance alongside the global Fridays for Future movement, with tens of thousands of scientists signing statements of support, joining climate strikes and calling for a coordinated action from the local to the global level. Just recently, More than 11,000 scientists from around the world endorsed a study in the scientific journal Bioscience that highlighted the extremely concerning trends of the ongoing climate crisis and called for profound societal transformation. But progress is not just happening in big public statements and from leading researchers making the headlines. Working with the World Youth Parliament for Water's research group, I see the future of climate science every day. We are aware of the problems. We have been for quite some time now, so the focus has shifted towards solutions. Approaches to mitigating climate change where possible and to adaptation to the inevitable impacts where necessary. Young researchers play a key role in this paradigm shift, as we are coming in with fresh minds, new perspectives and a willingness to experiment. Innovative participatory approaches like citizen science give us the opportunity to connect research with grassroots awareness raising and to stay in touch with local communities to learn about their current problems, and to account for their own visions of the future. We read the slogan, System Change, Not Climate Change, on climate protest posters all over the world. It is encouraging to see scientists taking this model to heart and changing the way we conduct climate research. Not quietly in the ivory tower, far away from the realities on the ground, but outspoken and increasingly in the middle of society.
0: That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks to our earlier guest, John Fleck, as a reminder, you can take a much deeper dive into the subject of our main interview, The Colorado River and Its Management, in his new book, which is linked in the episode description. And a big thanks to Julianne Schillinger for her Climate of Hope contribution. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter using ClimateReadyPod for the latest updates. Until next time! Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Tembo.